Welcome, everybody, to News of the Money World. Today, we've got a massive one. Uh, we had to cull some things because it's just too much. So we have tentative mission accomplished on the inflation battle, perhaps, maybe, who knows. We have uh, the new CPI data that's kind of done some stuff to the markets. We'll have a chat about what the market impact has been there. The Sam Altman drama, the story that's unfolded within a relatively short space time. And Javier Emilie from the new Argentinian pro-Bitcoin libertarian president. I'm excited to talk about that one and so much more. So let's get started perhaps first here with the tentative mission accomplished around inflation because we're seeing this everywhere that seems like we're just turning the corner now and things are starting to go in the right direction. Um, it's encouraging because that means that interest rates might come down, which means that our borrowing costs might ease up. Uh, but it's already kind of been factored into the markets, I guess. Do you want to just talk to us, I guess, Rupert, around what we're seeing play out now? Yeah, so last week, uh, I think it might have been Wednesday, uh, the US CPI for September came out, um, and it came out at 0.2%, which was the lowest reading uh, for, I think, for over two years. And so it really gives credence to a lot of the data and a lot of the external things that we are starting to see, which shows, you know what, maybe we are getting to the end of the inflation bubble. Uh, we've started to see similar data out of the UK. They also had a very weak print as well. And so... Markets rejoiced. Markets went awesome. This means all of a sudden we're very confident, we are increasingly confident that interest rates are at their peak. They're not going to go any further. And we're now starting to look again at a June 2024 um, start to decrease interest rates as well. And so a really, really strong shift. We've kind of been talking about this and seen this over the last four weeks. But this was the data point that really confirmed to everyone we are done. We have one here. Um, it's kind of the early 90, late 1970s, but um, who knows? Yeah. Hopefully this is real. Well, yeah, ho hopefully hopefully it's not not the repeat of that. But do you think that the markets have kind of gotten ahead of itself a little bit in anticipating a return to where we came from? Um, I think so. I think uh, we saw, so on the day of that CPI print, we saw the Russell 2000, which is the, uh, the small cap index in the U.S., that was at 4.5%. We saw the NASDAQ up 2%. Uh, we saw the S&P up strongly as well. And so, and we've also seen uh, medium-term interest rates come down by 30, 40 basis points. Yes. And so the markets have moved pretty quickly um, and, and really kind of taken this as a celebration. I yeah. think one of the things that we have learned over the last two years, one data point does not make a trend. Um, and so as we saw in the last um, Federal Reserve minutes and, and meeting, for them, it's all about the, the employment market. We have started to see that come off as well. Mm -hmm. And I think we still, a lot of people see that those kind of two or three data points as being evidence that, that a soft landing is where we're coming. But mm -hmm. to, to bluntly ask you your question, I, I think it's fair to say markets at the moment are pricing in perfection. Uh, yeah. They are pricing in the soft landing. They are pricing in a world where we kind of come out of this unemployment peaks at kind of five, five and a quarter, not too high. We don't really have a, we have no recession. We might have a couple of quarters or a year or two of uh, of slow growth, but but nothing much else. So, yeah, it, it's definitely looking like a pretty Goldilocks scenario right now. Yeah, it, it further embeds this theory though i think that we we seek perfection in markets 
in yep. so many ways, right? And then that adds fuel to this Keynesian dynamic where we're trying to manipulate and control markets using monetary policy, which puts way too much power and expectation on central banks, I think. So I think that we almost need to stand back and just go, hey, are, are our expectations actually correct here? Should we allow markets to fail occasionally to actually flush out and let the free market kind of creatively destroy all of the, the chaff so that only the good stuff is left. And I don't, I don't know if, if we're going to get a soft landing or not. Like I kind of, I, I hope just for continuity's sake, but maybe we're storing up a bigger problem later on. Oh, look, I think that's what we have learned over the last kind of, well, maybe we haven't learned it. I mean, <laughs> I think we, we had thought that sort of kind of, yeah, I'm just, we over we had thought that low interest rates had created a, a series of bubbles and it was going to be impossible to come out of and had distorted markets. I guess markets are telling us right now that's not what happened. Yeah. Um, I think we can all agree that the loose monetary policy around um, around COVID it definitely created a huge amount of inflation and has created a huge number of issues and we cannot underestimate the pain that 7 to 10% inflation over the space of 18 to 24 months has caused a huge number of people. Um, but, yeah, I think if you kind of look at where we are today in the current prognosis, central banks, everyone would be going, we've played a pretty perfect hand right now. Yeah, that's right. And I've got to give them credit, right? Got to give them credit. Well, do we? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I no, think... No, we don't, Rupert. It's well, <laughs> Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm not so convinced on that. I, I yeah. think I, I personally think that there are still a lot of issues lurking under the radar. Uh, where everywhere in the world, we're starting to see consumer spending dropping off a cliff. Yeah. Uh, we are starting to see unemployment tick up. Um, yeah. My favorite news outlet, Bloomberg, did a great article a couple of weeks ago saying. Uh, Every time soft landing becomes very, very prevalent in the media, when they look back over the last 40 years, um, that's when a hard recession hits. Yeah. So uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely there's a, definitely a whole lot of high fives going on and a number of Federal Reserves and central banks around the world right now. Yeah. I'd like to get like a whole team of all the central bankers standing on the uh, the, the deck of this aircraft carrier that George Bush, I think, stood on. Oh, that would be amazing. Accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that, that yeah, just would be so great. I think we're probably being slightly unfair to the central banks, though, as well, to be perfectly honest, um, because, well, they have been fighting against a massive political storm. Um, yeah. You've got central banks who have done a lot. But you've also got government, so you've just been spinning up a massive storm. Oh, yeah. We talked about it last week. The U.S. Um, deficit running at kind of over 10% of GDP. We've got the New Zealand deficit running at kind of 7%. I mean, governments have made their jobs really, really, really tough. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, okay, so let's now maybe talk about perspectives, right? So we, we in New Zealand, we have a lot of yep. um, bank economists that will – give a perspective on where they see interest rates are going. And what I love about that is that they all kind of have certain tilts, certain biases, which I think are actually really good and to be celebrated, not to be mocked or ridiculed at all, because okay. what it does is it kind of unlocks a three-dimensional picture of what yep. might be happening. And traditionally, we've seen 
A and Z kind of take one stance, and, and I've kind of picked up on this over the last couple of years, whereas on the opposite end of, of the spectrum, you could say, maybe one's hawkish, one's dovish, would be Kiwi Bank. And um, that's kind of almost inverted at the moment, and I've, I find that fascinating. I'm not sure if that's kind of what, what you picked up on as well, but any, any views on that? Um, yeah, look, I think um, I – yeah, it is interesting kind of how some of those those narratives have flipped. Um, what I would say is probably more interesting is the market reaction to when ANZ speak versus when Kiwi Wealth speak, right. or Kiwi Bank speak. Kiwi Bank, yeah. um, where we saw last week, ANZ came out and saying, "Hey, look, our interest rate projections have come down a little bit. We're going to take that January rise off the table completely. We just do not yeah. think that's going to happen." Um, and immediately, you saw wholesale interest rates drop by twenty five, thirty points. Yeah. So. Sure. I think we are, we have seen a, a really interesting reaction. Um, mm. That's why personally I was very surprised to see mortgage rates, uh, Kiwi Bank announced higher mortgage rates yesterday because we have seen over the last week or so, a, a kind of I think it's about 30 points have come out of mm. um, the wholesale money market yeah. and some of those yeah. wholesale interest rates. But as you say, that's potentially because the Kiwi Bank economists are, are forecasting something a little bit different. Um, yeah. But increasingly... It's starting to look like New Zealand is, is going to have those same global trends, and and hopefully this all means that by back end of next year we're starting to look at some lower interest rates. Yeah, and my, my and my view on that I think is is going to be that we're probably going to see a, a, a change in the I guess the mortgage rate yield curve. Yeah. It'll be potentially lower on the short yeah. end. So you might be floating and fixing for one or two years for a little bit lower, but. I still kind of suspect, and I could be wrong, of course, hopefully I am, I suspect that the longer-term fixed rates could continue to increase, which announces often the arrival of a recession, whereas a negative one predicts it, which we're still in, yeah. I think is kind of fascinating because normally we would just expect that short-term rates drop when a recession arrives. But I think in this case, it's actually possible that instead of this one dropping, we might get the higher ones increasing at a, at a larger rate just because of the the potential geopolitical stuff where governments are going to be forced to borrow more, I think if things escalate, which could cause higher rates on the, the long end. Does that rationale sound from your perspective? Well, I think, yeah, I, do. I think I think that is right. I think we, we still need to figure, I think there's concern in a number of economies around what is the sustainable path for fiscal policy. Um, at the end of the day, if governments have to keep on borrowing at four, four and a half percent, that's going to be really hard. Um, and so, yes, I do I do think that the fiscal path is going to mean, has, potential, has the potential to drive higher interest rates over time. Yeah. I think that the bigger, biggest one for me, though, is um, we don't really know what normal looks like. We, we don't yeah. know what our start is or what, what the basis of um, a, a zero kind of a neutral interest rate is anymore, right? 18 months ago, we would have said a neutral interest rate was two and a half. Today, we've got people saying a neutral interest rate is four and a half. Interestingly, the 10-year the yield is about that right now, which means that actually it's not, it shouldn't come down far from here. Mm. And so I think all of the uncertainty over the last 20 years, um, is there a new normal? And that's why I think people are going to be really gun-shy about kind of that plus the the geopolitical stuff, plus the fiscal positions. I just think people are going to be really uncertain and it's going to take a long time for those medium to longer term rates to come down. 
Yeah. Ultimately, we the taxpayer or we the citizens of a country, we pay for it, whether it's through our interest rate mechanism or through our taxation system. So, you know, interest rates, inflation, or it's just tax. So we have to pay for it at the end of the day. Nothing's free. All right. Well, yeah. let's, let's talk about something um, nice and dramatic, right? Like we, wow. we had the, the SBF drama uh, before, and that seems to be coming to a close. And just right on cue, we've got another drama that's unfolding, but this time in a much shorter space of time, uh, different Sam, but I don't know. Hopefully not the same character flaws as the first Sam, but certainly a lot of drama, right? So Sam Altman um, moving basically from OpenAI to uh, Microsoft, as we've learned today, and a whole lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. So do you do you want to go go first, Rupert, around giving the the logo? Yeah, some some of the background. Look, this is an amazing story, right? Um, yeah. And also, it kind of opens up a whole lot of visibility into a very opaque organization that no one really understands. So. OpenAI, they are the uh, the company that's behind ChatGPT, uh, arguably the most successful uh, tech innovation of uh, of all time, based on the number of users that are using it at the specific speed. Yeah. So OpenAI, what's really interesting is OpenAI was actually set up in about 2014 or 15 as a philanthropic organisation to help uh, set guidelines and rails and develop AI, but develop in a safe way. Interestingly, Elon Musk was the one that kind of funded most of it at the start, but it was it's a charity. It's not set up as a, as a private company. About three years ago, uh, Sam Altman recognized and saw that actually it cost them a hell of a lot to run all of these models and to kind of run an AI world. And so the only way they were going to do that was if they had the potential to open up to um, open up commercial revenue streams. And so that was kind of the chat GPT and then the raising a hell of a lot of money out of Microsoft and others um, as a way to kind of support and pay for that on the way through. The problem was the board and the company structure was all a bit weird. And so chat GPT was part of OpenAI Ventures, which is a private part of this kind of nonprofit uh, philanthropic kind of entity. And, the board of OpenAI got really concerned. Also, the board of AI got board of OpenAI got very concerned about how fast ChatGPT was was moving. How they were kind of opening themselves up to more investment. They were opening themselves up to um, increasing products. They were about to allow ChatGPT to go into um, into companies so that they can build their own versions of ChatGPT. And so, all of a sudden, the board felt, hold on a sec. The purposes of why we are here and what we are doing is to set up safeguards um, and make sure that this is developing in a safe way. But mm. actually, it's now going at such a massive pace that we've focused entirely on the commercialization. Yeah. And so what's amazing, and this is where it is just how a large company with $88 billion can get themselves in this position, I've got no idea. But yeah, apparently all this went down on Thursday. So Thursday afternoon, a board meeting was called where uh, the board kind of said, talked about having some issues around this and the direction that Sam Altman was taking the organization. At Friday, I think it was at 2 o'clock, he got called into a board meeting and told he was fired. By 2.30, a press release had gone out talking about how he was fired because of the board um, almost implying that he'd been lying to the board. Mm, that's um, right. strange, eh? 
it's very strange. Clarification came out over the weekend that he actually hadn't lied to the board. He hadn't really done anything wrong. It was just a slightly different difference of mm. opinion. Um, and so now what's happened is the ChatGPT staff have reacted very violently against this. And there's been a lot of kind of, um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, but he's gone. The board have said there's no way he's coming back. They've even managed to, over the space of a weekend, hire a new CEO, someone yeah. from Twitch, uh, the gaming company, and who apparently they've chosen because of the fact that he's been very public about the need for safeguards around AI and needing yeah. to slow it down. Yeah. Um, That's the weird part about this, right, is that there seems to be two groups yeah. like in, in so many ways. There's the the altruism sort of piece, and then there's the, the corporate or the um, – I guess the ambitious part, but then there is this safetyism, and then there's like the um, almost like, hey, we got to run with this now because we've just discovered something amazing. Even if it is dangerous, we got to run with it, right? So it's, there feels like maybe that's part of the schism, right? Oh, it's massive, but the, and then there's a third element to it, which is the cost. So right. the the cost of processing data for AI models is yeah. humongous. Yeah, And so if you can't commercialize, and this was Sam Altman's view, if you can't commercialize it, you're dead. Yeah, um, right. Because you're going to spend billion, many, many, many billions of dollars every year on um, on processing power. And yeah. so that's, this is kind of, it's unlike a lot of the social media companies and a lot of the, the previous tech worlds that we've seen, actually, there's a massive marginal cost to delivering this service. And that is um, Energy, right? that, what we've seen with... Um, NVIDIA, it's yeah. all about kind of having processing power. Yeah. Effectively, though, and this is where I think they've got it so wrong, because you're going to end up in open AI being the altruistic version and potentially slowing things down. But then you've got Sam Altman, who's now gone and joined Microsoft, um, and they're setting up an AI division within Microsoft. I would put a huge amount of money on the fact that he ends up with most of the open AI engineering talent yeah. Uh, within the next few weeks. Yeah. And so it's going to be fascinating to see where and, and how all this lands. Oh, yeah. um, but I think this is uh, probably the only description is this is a, a massive shooting yourself in the face from OpenAI board. Yeah. And I think like the journey from a not-for-profit to a commercial enterprise often creates the most vicious capitalists from yep. what I've seen in other examples, some local as well. And I think that that's something that... It's almost inevitable, but it's kind of ironic that people start off wanting to do no evil, then yet become the very thing that they abhorred at the beginning. And I, and I wonder where, where that goes for a start. But also, I, I'm curious around how that will influence. We talked about the Magnificent yep. Seven last week, how this will influence the Magnificent Seven even more in terms of their performance, because clearly it's giving a signal to the market that this is a really important space. Technology is taking a quantum leap here and people are jockeying for position or organizations are jockeying for position because they can see the opportunity. Has the market overpriced it or underpriced this opportunity with AI is the question that I've been mulling over. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, I think I think the first point you raised is a really interesting one, right? Which is the transition from altruism to capitalism. Yeah. Um, and I, I honestly believe that here it was just reality, right? He couldn't yeah. achieve anything altruistic if he didn't have the capitalist part, which was funding, providing all the money. Yeah, it was uh, and, I think, yeah. And, and I think that, that's what happens so often. 
is that um, people start off with altruistic objectives and pretty quickly realise, a little bit like um, talking about this at work last week, you go to an award ceremony and apparently it's all about how well you've done. But it's also about how much money you've spent sponsoring the awards and how much you've done all of that kind of stuff because without the sponsorship, the awards don't exist. Um, and I think yeah. that's why the, the balance is, is there, right? It's a, it's a really hard piece to mix. Yeah. Um, so I think that's – I kind of don't – I don't begrudge Sam Altman for going altruism to capitalism. I think he just did what he needed to do to survive. I think that the big tech companies will be looking at this going, wow, this is amazing. I personally, I think this has actually given them a massive, massive, massive leap forward mm-hmm. because chat GPT and open AI – I don't know, they might have been, whether it be three months, six months ahead. Um, yeah. But it wasn't, they weren't that much further ahead than the others. Kind of, yeah. we're talking months here, not years. Yeah. And this is definitely going to slow down ChatGPT, right? So I think actually this allows the rest of the field to catch up. What yeah. I, who I do think it causes much greater concern for are regulators. Because I think if a board is willing to self-implode and blow up a company because they are so scared about what their products can do, hmm. a regulator has to take action. Yeah, a regular, the Congress and the Senate, they mm-hmm. have to kind of stand up and go, oh, fuck, maybe there is a whole lot here that we do not understand. Yeah. Well, I, I was kind of almost thinking in my head when you were saying that, I was just imagining a um, like a DC Comics or a Marvel Comics sort of plot, right? Where yeah. they've discovered, they've cracked the code, they've just discovered how to create sentient life. And maybe that's where the schism came from. Like, it's quite fascinating to kind of go down these rabbit holes. Um, but I guess ultimately where we sit as everyday investors would be kind of like, well, how does this actually impact yep. where our returns will be coming from? Because clearly technology is always the thing that mines wealth. It's the catalyst that goes out there in the universe and creates something out of nothing in the natural world. And I think that that's, Ultimately, what we're doing as investors is, is that we're chasing where these uh, where these tailwinds are so that we can build what little we have into something much bigger. And so as it relates to investing in tech, it's it's not just technology full stop. Technology is it's got layers. Right. And it seems like at the pointy head is yeah. is AI. But, yeah. but and actually, 100 percent, it is all about AI is where the future is. Yeah. But the other thing that I'm thinking about as we're speaking is to me, this gives me more confidence that the Magnificent Seven win in the future because this form of tech is very different to the, the previous versions of tech, which is you made a piece of software and then everyone just came and used it, so you had zero marginal cost. I think this is the, the amount of money that has been spent on processing here and on kind of the need for power. Mm. You're going to need humongous balance sheets to win. You're going to need humongous data sets to win. Yeah. Um, and actually... Sam Altman's journey from altruism to capitalism, to me, is a sign that it's got the only people that can really win this this battle. It's going to be the Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, or Google. Yeah. Interesting. It'll be interesting also to see what the large fund managers do when they decide that hey, if Bitcoin was an unethical asset to own because of the power consumption, well, what about AI? <laughs> much oh, that's, a, that's a great conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. There is not such thing, in my view, increasingly over the last couple of weeks, there is no limit as to how far you go when you employ some sort of exclusion strategy with ethical investing. But 
let's save that for another day, shall we? Yes. Um, well, I think we saw that last week, right? Where yeah. one of the Kiwi, uh, one of the New Zealand KiwiSaver providers um, decided to jump on it and came out excluding certain uh, Palestinian banks. Um, yeah, Israeli banks, yeah. And also Israeli banks. Yeah. And yeah, it's been fascinating, the reaction. Yeah. Um, where I think they've kind of uh, probably haven't got the positive tinge that they thought, um, yeah. but because I think our job as investors is not to be doing short-term reactionary behaviours to this kind of stuff as well. Yeah, excellent. Well said. Hey, let's let's finish off on something um, kind of interesting because this is ultimately where I think the, the ethical investing really should be uh, targeted is around the dollar system. And so the fiat currency system is effectively what we all operate under where we use the dollar's by degree yep. from our government, from our nation state. Argentina has had triple digit inflation for quite some time. And we have been complaining, say in New Zealand here with relatively high inflation for a while, we have no idea. And therefore no. we probably don't appreciate the cure so much uh, either. But over, over recently we had, uh, I, lo- I love saying this guy's name, Javier Amelier. I don't even know if that's how you say it, but that's how I say it. And the new Argentinian... Uh, president that's been elected. He's a libertarian. Uh, he's short. He's got wild sideburns. He's like a like a really short version of uh, Neil Young on acid is my my impression. And I'm just really looking forward to seeing where else he takes his chainsaw, really, in terms of the central banks and and the, and the status yeah. quo. So, yeah, like I think if if they convert that economy from Argentina, like where, where there's crazy hyperinflation by either moving to the U.S. dollar. Or that and or Bitcoin, it's it's going to be fascinating. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that, Rupert. Yeah, look, I, I'm not huge. I've looked at the dollarization and a little bit of the the potential for the um, for uh, the crypto stuff there. I, I think I remember a conversation you and I had last year. Oh, maybe not last year. This end of this year. So anyway, a little while ago. Where we talked about adoption yeah. of crypto yeah. and kind of where it becomes and replaces um, traditional fiat currency, and I think we both agreed at that point in time, it wasn't necessarily going to happen in the US or it wasn't going to happen in the eurozone or areas where they've got strong stable currencies. Yeah. It was going to happen in areas where people don't trust their governments, they uh, have got very unstable economic systems, and they just do not want to hold their own local currency, and potentially they don't trust the US. Uh, which is an ever-increasing part of the world. And so me, I, I still stand by that. I still firmly believe that crypto, Bitcoin has a has a role or cryptocurrencies have a really a great role in allowing individuals to diversify away from their everyday kind of currency that they don't necessarily trust and like. That might be completely different to how we think coming from New Zealand where we moan about Adrian Orr and the Reserve Bank, but let's be honest, we don't really have any real problems in the scheme of things. Um, that's right. And that's where I see this going, right? So I I think you'll find a lot of Argentinians would much prefer not having the Argentinian peso. Um, are they happy in employing the US dollar? I, I don't know. I suspect potentially, but there will be a very large part that sits there and, and watches what has happened and um, – to kind of to Russia, to China, uh, to a number of other markets where people can very quickly be blacklisted, accounts can be frozen. Um, the US government has got a very long reach, and particularly when you're using US dollars, that reach gets very, very long. I think for a lot of people, yeah. Bitcoin is, and whether it's Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency, I think that has to be the answer. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and the global South will probably get a, get a leg up by doing so in my view. And I think with uh, Argentina in particular, Argentina in particular, like they're, they were flirting with the, the BRICS network. Uh, I know that yep. the Chinese yuan was kind of being involved there. So I know that this decision has probably kind of almost alienated them a little bit from a couple of other key players. And so it's, it really just adds an extra dynamic when you're trying to understand the, the macro universe that we're investing in. It really adds an extra dynamic when you're considering the nation state moves at the moment. And as that relates yep. to the financial system as well, because you have your, your portfolio, which might be invested in the US, the rest of the world, emerging markets, and then local. But then the other layer on top of that is really important to consider as well, because diversification isn't just about asset classes, it's about so much more. Awesome. Oh, hey, we've been, um, I think we, we, we went over time here, didn't we, Rupert? Sorry about that. Oh, we have. Can I give you so one last uh, amazing story yeah. about diversification? Please do. Yeah. Um, the one last one, which is something I read yesterday, which uh, a market very large, but everyone has written off for a very long time, Japan. Uh, Japanese market is up 24% yeah. this year, uh, year to date. Uh, one of the best performing markets in the world, a market that everyone had written off a very long time ago. And it shows the power and the importance yeah. of diversification uh, because you never know which one's going to be next. And so 100%, whether it be markets, yeah. asset classes, Fascinating, yeah. um, you've got to make yeah. sure you have your, your feet in lots of boats because uh, when some tides rise, others fall. Exactly. And even with the content that you consume. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in to <laughs> News of the Money World. Please please share us. Please pimp us out to all your friends who want a uh, – a refreshing mainstream yet contrarian perspective on current events. Awesome. Thank you, Rupert. We'll, uh, we'll catch Thanks, you in the next Nelson. one. Great chat. Cool. All right. See ya. Bye.